Hi, my name is Barry, and you're listening to Faith Over Dementia. Well, hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. We're at episode 007, and I just want to give a big shout out to all of my new followers. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in and and listening. I hope you're enjoying the uh, podcast so far. And um, we are today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4. I'll be diving into it uh, pretty quickly, I think. Um, I am hoping to give an update on on how things are going for for me but like I said last time um, I really want to do an interview with my my wife because I think she's a better place to tell you how things things are so um, welcome and let's uh, jump into uh, Genesis chapter 4 so uh, what I want to say is at the end of the last episode we saw how even though the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience towards God was banishment, God banished them from the garden, we also saw how this was an incredible benevolent act by God. It prevented the people from actually eating from the tree of life and therefore being stuck forever in their shame and sin but one thing i'd like to point out is that separation that that banishment separation from god's presence in one sense is only going to be temporary it's only ever meant to be temporary you see it's always god's intention to be in intimate relationship with his people you know, we saw God walking in the garden with his children. He was so blessed by their presence. And that is why at the end of chapter 3, there's this incredible promise in the midst of all this despair. The promise of a saviour that this situation will be dealt with and will be sorted out. It's because God hears our shame. He sees it. And in his love, he benevolently gives us comfort because he was and is and always be the hero of this incredible story of love, compassion, rescue and redemption, renewal and ultimately new creation but that's getting way ahead of ourselves today we're going to see mankind plunge further into sin even though god has enabled the couple to have two sons and it has to be said in whom maybe rests the hope of an offspring who will overcome this serpent Callously, Cain, the elder boy, 
murders his righteous brother Abel. And it seems that evil is going to triumph. And any hope that Cain's descendants will reverse this trend appears to be remote. Especially when one of his descendants, Lamech, boats of committing the same crime. However, hope once again appears with the announcement by Eve of the birth of another son, Seth. So that's a quick outline. And today, we're going to be talking about Cain and Abel, and this idea of how fear and shame ruined their story. So we're going to jump into Genesis 4, 1-2, verses 1-2, to and as usual, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Now I'm going to pause right there, just for a moment, because after the mess of the last episode, this statement that Eve made can be read one of two ways. You can read it as if Eve is angry at Adam, and she is naming Cain in spite of her husband, because he's not even mentioned in this part of the text. It's as if she's saying, well, forget Adam, with the help of the Lord I brought forth a man. Or, you can read it like this. Look, whatever I've done without my husband, me and the Lord, we've done this amazing thing. It's as if there's a rift between the couple, a suggestion of a rift. Well, of course there is. There are some broken relationships here. You know, cast your mind that back Adam's first response to God when asked what has happened was to blame his wife no take responsibility Adam you dirtbag well he is made from dust after all you know I can't imagine that any of this went down very well but seriously I don't think for one moment that this is the case because Eve calls her firstborn Cain, which in Hebrew means acquired. It's a weird phrase to use when talking about the fact that she has given birth to a son, especially if she is trying to say, me and God have done this without Adam. The fact is, you just wouldn't name him acquired. So there must be something else going on here. I really don't think that she is saying these things in spite of Adam. I think Eve is saying them because what she is trying to say is this. Only because of God's help, maybe his grace, only because of God's help have I been able to acquire or to give birth. The emphasis seems to me to be more towards one of gratitude or maybe even one of optimism 
or maybe both. Remember, the serpent may yet be overthrown by the offspring of the woman. Now, here's the thing. We pick names because we think they sound cool. Or we pick names out of a sense of sentimentality. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, your name isn't just a name. It is so much more. Your name was your essence. Your name was your destiny in a sense. Your name meant something. And you're either going to live out your name in a positive sense or you're going to live out your name in a negative one. Now it appears that Eve names came more out of um, her sense of experience than anything else. But one thing's for sure, his name is going to define who he is for better or for worse. So let's continue with our text, verses 3 to 7. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell the lord said to cain why are you angry and why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well well sin is crouching at the door its desire is contrary to you now some of your versions will say its desire is to have you means the same thing Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. So, our story moves on. But before we do, I want to remind us about something. And it's a reminder about the same questions we've been asking in the past. The same question that we asked in previous episodes. It's the question we should always be looking to ask when it comes to biblical narrative. What are the problems with the story? What are the questions we should be asking ourselves about this narrative? Because this is where the treasure is mined. This is where we find those incredible jewels. This is where the changes happen from within us. And this is where we get the opportunity to go deeper with the text. So, firstly, what grabs me here most is a surprising lack of background detail that we have you know for one of the most defining stories in the bible there's very little it's almost as if someone wants us to zero in on this lack of detail to help us try and think about it and ask the question why and maybe try and fill in some of those details for ourselves to collaborate with the text if you will and then reflect on the implications we see there's a name for this technique it's called jewish meditation literature and its intent is to make us ask these very questions of the text precisely because there is a lack of detail 
we see God or the author working in this way before we've seen him working in this way before in the previous chapters you know God could teach us the way to go but instead it's as if he's saying yeah I can teach you but I'm not going to create an obstacle for you and by having to deal with this obstacle you will learn you'll learn what it is that I wanted to teach you for yourself I think of it this way it's a bit like in the film The Karate Kid. Do you remember that film? You know, my children and I used to love that film. We used to watch those series of films all the time, but, but not now. But anyway, it's like in that film when Mr Miyagi had Daniel-san clean off all his cars. Remember, wax on, wax off. Well, the other one was paint the fence thing. Daniel hadn't got a clue what was going on. To him, it was just a silly way and pointless the way to clean the cars and to paint the fence. But you know what? Eventually, he mastered the lesson and then he applied it to his next karate match. It helped him to to win. Daniel learned the lesson. Yeah, the text lacks most of the detail we would expect. But we need to look, we need to think. We are told, however, that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. Seemingly a bit random detail, but they're given because they are actually important to, to what is taking place. The text goes on. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and the Abel and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. It's really weird. Cain brought an offering to the Lord. It's got to be one of these problems because we're not told where he brought it or even why he brought it what prompted him to do this so maybe we can fill in some of these details so in the last chapter what strikes me is in the last chapter when the couple were driven out of the garden and the way back was barred by the cherubim incidentally they're described the cherubim are described elsewhere in the bible as these formidable creatures who rest at the throne of God's presence and relentlessly guard his sacred space, his sacred space. And a flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The preceding chain of events must have turned the couple's world upside down. Maybe they were shocked, confused, feeling very alone. Cast out of that sacred place, outside of the sanctuary, the temple, if you will, that was Eden. Remember how we saw that as temple imagery. They were cast away from God's presence. So taking that into account then, I don't think that the couple would have wandered 
too far away from their only known world. So it's not inconceivable, if you will, that Cain and Abel would have brought their offering to the Lord near to that place that was most familiar to them as a family at the east of the garden that was guarded by that cherubim, that awesome creature. And this is interesting because this reminds me that traditionally offerings were made just outside of the inner holy place of the tabernacle. When we read further on, later on in the Bible, we will see that that's where offerings were made. Outside of the holy place, that sacred God's space that all were barred from apart from the high priest and then only once a year and then with the observance of so many rituals. So maybe that's where it was, just outside that gate. But why? Why did the brothers start making an offering to God? God hadn't asked for one. Nowhere in the text does it say God is asking for an offering. We're not told, but we can imagine. Firstly, are these sacrifices coming from some sense, uh, some fallen sense of humanity that wants to appease an angry God type of system? Well, I, I don't think so, because it seems to me that these gifts are coming from the heart of the worshipper. They actually seem spontaneous, so they're not coming in response to a command. So it's probably more likely to be from a sense of gratitude. You know, Cain's a farmer and he's bringing an offering of the fruit of the land. Farmers, they're so dependent on the weather to make their produce grow. And when you think about it, it's actually God that makes it grow. He was the one that set the seasons into place, those sacred times, it says in the Bible. So... In one sense, Cain has acquired his produce from God. And then there's the thorns and the weeds issue, curse, to consider, which is a problem because he it means he's going to have to work really hard to prepare the soil, to keep the weeds away, to make sure that it's watered well. He's completely dependent on God for those things Abel his brother is a shepherd he also needs plenty of lush grass to water and to feed his sheep and he likewise has to protect them to care for them in another sense they are both dependent on God for favourable conditions so Cain brings his offering of the fruit of the land and Abel brings his offering of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions or the best portions. Just an aside here, it's an interesting point. Both of these offerings become part of the latter Levitical system. You know, Cain's offering from the land becomes about 
consecration. And Abel's is a kind of peace offering, a meal in the presence of the Lord. You can read about both of those uh, offerings in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 19 to 23. So my question here is, could uh, these have worked together? Could both sacrifices have worked together? Consecration and peace. Shalom. And it's interesting that, that we we get all this imagery of, we're still getting this imagery of temple worship. There is a problem here though. And that problem is that offerings don't work automatically. They are dependent on the worshipper's faith and the condition of their heart. Which makes me think, is something else going on? The text tells us, And the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, we're not told in this paragraph why God liked Abel's offering and not Cain's. And there is a discussion amongst scholars that sometimes hovers around and about. Well, Abel offered the best portions. That's what the phrase that is in Hebrew, the fat portions. And, you know, it can mean the best portions. So there's an insinuation here. But we're not actually told that Cain doesn't offer the best of his crops. The text doesn't tell us that it's, he doesn't offer the best, the best uh, of his of his crop. So could it be because Abel's was a more costly gift, expressing a greater devotion? You know, there's no directly stated reason for why God likes Abel's. It just says he likes Abel's and he doesn't like Cain's. The whole point of this part of the story is it's not so much about God here as it is about Cain that's where the author is wanting us to focus on Cain and the focus of the story is firmly on how Cain responds and what he is perceiving so what do we know we know he is very angry so, is he feeling divine neglect or even divine rejection? He is the older brother, yet God has shown this favour for his brother's offering over his own. So maybe there's fear at play here or even inadequacy. Remember how in the last chapters we were reminded how our identity is not bound up in what we produce. So that's a bit of a red herring. You know, I didn't offer a good uh, offering. My brother's was, was better than me. No, no, your identity is not bound up in what you produce. Jewish meditation literature is asking you here, the reader or the listener, to sympathise with Cain because you, the listener of the story, 
are experiencing the same lack of knowledge about God's intention as Cain is. The author is inviting us to experience this story from Cain's point of view, to empathise with him. So the text says, Why isn't God looking with favour on me? Why is this happening? What am I doing wrong? Am I not good enough? Maybe some of those were the questions running through Cain's mind or the the emotions that were welling up in his heart, making him angry. We're being invited into Cain's response. Cain is very angry and his face is downcast, literally angry and sad. God had no regard for Cain's offering, and Cain's face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So God's telling him, he will be accepted. And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, or to have you. But you must rule over it. You must dominate it. You must master it. It's that word again, though, desire. We had that in Genesis 3. Cast your minds back to to Genesis 3, when they were talking, Eve was looking at the apple, or the fruit. Cain is in this crucial moment right here. And the idea is this. His face has fallen and he now is faced with a choice. So it becomes all about choices. He can be lifted up if he wants to be. If he chooses good to do well. Or not. We see the same word Uh, used as in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2 it is good it is good it is good and all of a sudden it seems as if we're being invited back to the story of the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil and the trust issue that was there the couple were being asked to trust God Remember, trust the story. Choosing good or well, which means just to trust God's wisdom and goodness, even in a moment when I don't know why. So Cain's face has fallen. And what decision is he going to make regarding good? You know, this is the story of Genesis 3 again and the tree. It is a retelling of that same story with Adam and Eve. It's telling us about the human condition and how we are meant to be dependent on God and his definition of good and evil and sin. It's the first time that that word is used in the Bible here in this chapter. So in essence, there are two paths set before Cain. Even when I don't know why something bad is happening, I can continue to choose to do good. 
to move forward, to trust God, the story, and do good. Or the other path, the other possibility, which is depicted as a wild animal, a beast. Remember back in episode 6, and God's reminder to the couple, you are not beasts, you are not an animal, you're made in God's image, you're human. It's all playing out again. And this beast, this sin, wants to eat you up with anger and bitterness and resentment. That's the sin that's crouching at the door. Failure. Moral failure. And it desires to have you, to consume you. This is the path of destruction. But you must master it. You must rule over it because you are not a beast. You are not an animal. God told us you are a human and you are made in his image. And you are loved and you are significant and you're valued. And crucially for Cain, you are accepted. This is your identity and you have everything you need again it's the genesis 3 temptation all over again but now it's kind of developed and it's made more personal and it's been put into a more day-to-day setting of how things go wrong in our own family or our own situations or our own circumstances things going wrong that can tempt me towards bitterness and anger and resentment And I, just like Cain, can choose to overcome and choose a better way. Or not. I can give way to it. Give into it. Let it wash over me. And let it eat away at my humanity. Let it make me behave like the beast and do destructive things. You know, who doesn't recognise this story? Who doesn't know it? In one sense, we are all living this story out. We're all facing these same choices every day of our lives. And that's the whole point of this Jewish meditation narrative. And it's amazing because it asks you to just stop and ask those questions. What are the problems with this story? What are the things that are standing out to us? And as we progress on through the Bible, we'll find out that it's how most of the Bible stories works. And if you keep asking those questions of the text, you will see that the author is inviting you into the story, asking you to participate, asking you to collaborate. It's your story too. So after this episode, I would encourage you that it would be a good idea to go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and read them in light of what we've just learned and just see what else you notice. But let's get back to our text, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. 
God's warning to Cain about mastering sin, ruling over it, because it's like this crouching beast just waiting to bounce and devour him. Well, it seems to go unheeded. It would seem that he gives in to the anger and resentment, the temptation of bitterness and jealousy, and he behaves like the beast, the predator. Sin has him. It means that Cain now defines as good that his brother must die. He's saying to himself, it's good that my brother dies. So he speaks to Abel, and when Abel comes onto Cain's territory, into the field, he strikes, just like the serpent, kills his brother without pity. A cold and calculated action. Verse 9, Then the Lord says to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, I'm hearing echoes of Genesis 3 again, and Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. And, God, and But God is asking, Where is your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain shows no remorse here and his cold-hearted nature causes him to deny any knowledge about his brother which is a lie it's as if he's blaming god well you had no regard for my offering so am i my brother's keeper surely that was your job you preferred his offering well quite frankly no you were his older brother. You were responsible. And God says, what have you done? It's exactly what God said to Adam and Eve and the serpent back in Genesis 3. God continues, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Innocent blood crying out from the ground. You know, that word ground, in Hebrew, we've met it before. Adam, or humanity. God said from the ground you came and to the ground you will, re will return. So even in our culture, as in most cultures, burial is a proper way to honour someone with dignity. Not for Abel. We, with burial get closure but not to to be not properly dealt with to be not properly buried is one of the most unjust and dishonorable horrifying things for loved ones to have to endure abel's murder must have been like a megaphone crying out to god innocent blood cain's blood you know to god human Life matters, and it matters so much. So there's consequences for Cain. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer, on the earth. Once again. We have a direct link to Genesis 3. 
God tells Cain he is cursed from the ground and that now he has decided to interpret good and evil on his own terms. His environment, both his relational and his experience of life, is going to be one of hostility and tension rather than ease and peace. Yes, he had to work the ground before that was the curse in genesis 3 that you would have to work the ground and by the sweat of your brow you will eat but all of a sudden it's going to get much harder for cain cursed from the ground it's as if the ground is going to totally reject him and he's going to be a wanderer so there's no peace so he's not even going to be able to stay in one place to work the ground. You're cursed away from it, God said. He's a wanderer. He's in exile. He doesn't have a home anymore. Cain's reply said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain replies, and it seems that he is complaining that his punishment is harsh because he's been driven away from the land and banished from God's presence. It would appear that he believes that God is no longer with him and he fears for his life. You know what? This parallels Adam and Eve again. They were banished from the garden. Cain is banished. All are driven away from God's presence. And it sets up a thought that not to resist sin, to give in and to allow anger and bitterness and resentment to rule, to rule me. And if I do that, I begin to make choices and display habits of behaviour that have destructive relational results that end up in greater and greater isolation becoming more and more isolated, a wanderer in the world without a home. So that's what thought is set up with Cain. Cain may still be in God's world, but he becomes more and more hidden from God because of his own moral failure. He fears for his life. Fear does enter but God puts a mark on Cain let's carry on reading 15 to 24 then the Lord said to him not so if anyone kills Cain vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold and the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahelua, 
and Mahiluel fathered Methuselel, and Methuselel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bought Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. God puts this mark on Cain to prevent him being killed and forces him from the land and away from his presence. And the text seems to be implying that this is true of Cain's dependence as well as there's no mention of because there's no mention of God. Let me just repeat that. The text seems to be implying that this is true of Cain's dependence as well because there's no mention of God in verses 17 to 24. Just Cain settling in the land of Nod, which means rather appropriately wandering. Nod means wandering. Then taking a wife, this is Cain taking a wife, he has a child, Enoch, and he builds a city. If I'm honest, I think this is a picture of humanity pulling further and further away from God and further and further towards sin. It would appear so because we get this seven generations later, Lamech becomes a murderer and he actually boasts about having killed a man for striking him. It shows his inordinate vengefulness and his bigamy reveals his deep depravity. The line of Cain is dominated by those who have no regard for the lives of others. Lamech boasts that his vengeful passion makes him safer than Cain, who only had protection from God. Clearly, the stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, are being passed on from generation to generation. However, it would appear that maybe humanity has become so isolated, so ruled by this beast, sin, that there is no hope. That's the way it would appear. But then we get verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord.
So we suddenly jump back into the story of Adam and Eve again. And where the last section seemed to give us the impression that there is no hope for humanity, suddenly Eve reports the birth of of this son, Seth, and his offspring, Enosh. And the potential of these births is underlined by the observance that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, seeking him, possibly in public worship here. This calling on the name of the Lord carries the implication that this is starting with Adam and Eve. It's in their firm family circle that, that people start calling on the name of the Lord. This is good news. It's hope. So I look forward to talking with you next time when we will have a quick look at Genesis chapter 6 and see what's going on with humanity and then we're going to dive into chapter 7 the story of Noah so I hope you're with me on this uh, episode 7 Genesis 4 if you've got questions you're welcome to email email me at faithoverdementia at gmail.com but in the meantime may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord turn his face toward you and in these days give you peace God bless God bless